Okay. If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to try to do the whole chapter today. We're in a study of Romans, so we're just walking through 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. The last quarter of the book of Romans is our study. Uh, this, the theme of this section of the book of Romans would be practical living. It's very practical. And I think if I, if I could, I think this message today is going to kind of come in the head and then hopefully migrate to the heart. Sometimes the message comes, you know, in and up, but this is, uh, Paul's calling us to be thoughtful here and maybe uh, bringing conviction through thoughtfulness. And the teaching is going to be about how do we behave towards our governing authorities. So I'll give you a little example I've had a lot of commanders over my life, a lot, some good, some bad, uh, just like bosses, people, you've had good bosses and bad bosses, the only difference is, like, if I say no to my boss, I go to jail, <laughs> right, a little more authoritarian, uh, I could get shot, uh, but, and there's a, there's a higher sense of, uh, there's a higher sense of duty and honor that's implied in military service, so you're there is uh, an act of service. And that changes things a little bit. But I had good commanders and I've had bad commanders. And I'll tell you, uh, good commanders are fun to work for. You're eager to work for them. They, they motivate you. Um, bad commanders, not so much. It's not as quite as fun. The worst commander I ever had, he was the wing commander of the base... I served at, which means like he owned the base. Okay, he was getting ready to put on his first star, and I, I didn't have any kind of. I didn't diagnose back then. I just kind of went along my merry way. But he must have had major, major ego issues, insecurity, ego issues. Very, very caustic and abusive. Um. I mean, would not think twice about just chopping you down in front of everybody. And he had this, uh, periodically, he would, about twice a year, he'd have what you would call an officer's call, which was a mandatory formation where all the officers on the base had to convene. And we would convene in the officer's club bar. And about 200 of us, I guess, it felt that way. It was a full room. And he would come late, which is his prerogative. Uh, but then he, as soon as he walked in the room, he would say two words uh, that I hated to hear. He would say, dead bug. Now, I guess it's connected to some old fighter pilot tradition that if you go into an O Club bar and you yell dead bug, everybody in the room has to hit the floor, get on their back, wiggle their hands and feet, and act like a dying cockroach. And I, I never know the whole tradition. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of these things, but I never know the whole tradition. I assume the last guy down is supposed to has to buy the bar, okay? Because every tradition like that ends in buying the bar. Uh, but he would do it. He would do it just to make everybody get on the floor. 
twice a year, he would convene us. He'd walk in and yell dead bug, and everybody would learn. He, wouldn't, he would didn't, certainly didn't buy the bar. He would just do it to make us get on the floor. Drove me batty. I mean, he was a, he was a pretty bad commander. But, you know, the, the truth is, you're allowed to be a bad commander. Like, there's no law against bad bosses. And there's all sorts of ways. I mean, the way that I react towards a bad commander is really ultimately not supposed to be all that different from the way I react to the good commander. I have a job. The job is to do a good job in what I do. And the path to peace with the bad commander is identical to the path to peace with the good commander, which is work hard and keep your head down. Right? That, as bad as someone can be, you know, work hard, don't stick out, do a good job, and you'll be okay. In other words, we didn't have any sectarian society of living bugs. We didn't have a patch of, like, living bugs that we kind of showed under our sleeves or where we were secretly plotting to have an insurrection to overthrow this bad boss. And none of that. He's just a bad boss. Which is different than an unlawful order. Okay, so there's good bosses, good commanders, there's bad commanders, but then there's unlawful orders. Unlawful orders are orders that I ought not to obey because the commander is ordering you to do something that violates a higher law, okay? You can be a bad boss all day long and never give an unlawful order. You're just a bad commander. Okay, when we come to the scriptures, hopefully this gives us a little bit of a framework on how to, how to walk through this. Uh, Probably two things should be said before we, we dip in here. One, whenever we think about government, we're, we in America are in a really unique position, historically unique position, because we as American citizens are so empowered in the governmental process. If we don't like things, we have there's levers we can pull, ways we can vote, ways we can influence in order to change the environment around us. We're very, very empowered citizens in this country. Um, that's not... that's very unusual to human history and is certainly not the case in biblical history. Okay, so these were, uh, you know, emperors, empires, and the citizens, except for the highly elite, really didn't, didn't have much say. That's the first thing to note. Second thing is, is anytime we begin to talk about submitting to governing authorities and these sorts of things, uh, I will not be at all surprised in your mind if you drift to Hitler. It's like the Hitler syndrome. We talk about how government ought to be, and pretty soon someone's saying, well, what about if you there you're Hitler? Hitler comes out. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, just can you, we'll put that a little, put the brakes on Hitler, okay? Get about halfway through the message, and we'll deal with what does the Christian do during uh, extreme situations? I really do think, though, as we try to understand how God wants us to deal and be inside of our government, that we do much better to think about the rule and not the extreme exceptions. Way more good is going to happen in our spirit if we deal with the normal reality now and ask the questions in now's reality than what about in a certain extremist situation that we've never actually seen. 
Okay, let's look at a couple verses and uh, we'll start to build the picture here. Chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, there's, it's pretty sharp. There are a lot of edges on that statement. Now, Paul may have a... I think the reason Paul's dealing with this, where it is in Romans, is because when you say to a church, when you say to a gathering of believers be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by it, (laughs) that can start questions inside. Especially if the church is being progressively alienated from the prevailing culture. If as days go by, they're more and more differentiated and isolated from their becoming the them uh, in Rome, what it means to be no longer conformed can raise can can be a catalyst towards some pretty we might say dangerous thinking i mean think about what the theology of christ does to a good roman citizen i mean the theology of christ says caesar is no god there is only one god and he's lord and his name is jesus christ well that's significant What do you think Christianity does to a Roman culture that's built on slavery? I mean, hundreds of thousands of slaves in the city of Rome. The best scholarship believes that the Roman church, and for that matter, many of the Greco-Roman churches of the time, were growing significantly among the slave populace. So in, in your church on Sunday, okay, when you would gather as believers and share the Lord's Supper together, there would be slaves and freeborn citizens at the same table. And you as a slave are hearing that you are a co-heir with Christ and you are a brother or a sister with the freeborn citizen slave owner across the table from you. I mean, that, that's going to start certain questions. How do I go from being equal to you now across this Lord's table to being conceivably your slave the moment we leave this building? Needless to say, Paul is coming in in, in a church, and these are natural questions. I think that the Spirit, if we're not part of this, if we're not officially part of this world, if that Caesar is not my Lord, if he's not really my emperor, if this structure is not the kingdom that I observe, then what do I do about this kingdom? Especially when it begins to press on me. That's, that's the matter at hand here. And what Paul is saying is, is, you know what you do? You subject yourself to it with joy. That's what he's saying. He says, the institution known as government, and to them the Roman Empire, okay, the peace of Rome that's over them and not well aligned with them, He's saying it's instituted by God, God is over it, and God works through it. And to resist it is tantamount to resisting the Lord. 
Now, I think, many scholars think that Paul either wrote this letter to the Romans from Corinth or from uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So he's writing from, let's say, from Turkey uh, to Rome. Peter, uh, maybe a decade later, 15 or so years later, writes a letter, maybe from Rome to Turkey, in the letters of 1 Peter. And he says almost the same thing. Just I want you to hear it, because we think a lot about Paul and we think a lot about Peter, and so when they say things that are so in line with one another, it uh, kind of has a double effect here. This is 1 Peter 2. This is what he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent to him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a covering up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's clear. God is in the governing institutions. Now now here's what he adds to that. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, by the way, when Paul says he's God's servant, he's not implying that this pagan Roman is consciously serving the Lord, but rather this governor or centurion or whoever it might be in the Roman government is doing the work of God by maintaining law and order. And he's pretty much saying, if you do the right thing, you'll be okay. For the most part, for the most part, good citizens do just fine. Government is itself an institution that exists to protect us from ourselves. Peter said it this way in the same letter, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous to do what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. He goes on to say, if you happen to suffer, then you're doing the suffering of Christ. And there's a lot I can say about that. But he says, for the beginning... Who's going to suffer if they're zealous for doing what's good? Good citizens don't have to worry. You know, we, every human just lives in a slice of time, so all we can see is what, you know, what our years afford us. But it has been interesting to me how over the past 10, 15 years, we've had some very real examples just historically, uh, of governments where I walk away going, even bad government is better than no government. Like you look at Libya or Syria or Iraq, and man, bad government is better than no government. There's a wise word here of seek 
to be good. Like in your place, in your state, in your nation, whatever you would call it, seek to be good and it'll work out. Let's read five through seven. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He begins this little phrase in verse 5, very interesting. He says, listen, I'm not asking you to do this simply to avoid the wrath of God. I'm asking you to do this because it's the right thing to do. We are to be good citizens because it's right. That's what he's saying. In other words, he's not trying, we shouldn't be a bunch of curmudgeon Christians who we obey, but we're not happy about it. And you're going to get a phone call from me, and I'm going to chew your ear off in the name of Jesus. I am going to bite up and down your back with the truth of God so that you know what a bad leader you are. I am going to Facebook until my knuckles hurt about how bad you are. That is not here. He's saying you don't submit to avoid the wrath. You subject yourself because it's right. We ought to be very good citizens. That's what he's saying. And I'll just give you some, here's a hypothetical picture, but I'm sure it will resonate as true. You have, you have in our case, an elected leader, okay? A city council person, right? Now you have, you have one Christian A here who is abiding by the teachings of Scripture. And so city council, city councilman over here, not following the Lord, doesn't agree with these things, you know, just going about. But this individual Christian here prays for this council, councilman, meets with him, seeks to encourage him where he can, uh, is respectful of his office, is kind in the way he approaches, in every way to the degree that's possible and honest, endears himself through high citizenship towards this elected official. The effect is that even though that official may not be Christian, his reflection on the people of God is positive. Then you have Christian B, who has a big old whistle and blows it every time he does something wrong and complains about him and says there's judgment in hell for someone like him and, you know, is tears him down. And, and the enduring effect on that elected official is what about the church? Don't you see how we could technically subject ourselves to the government and still do great harm if our disposition is not right? He's saying, don't just do it to avoid the wrath of God. Do it because it's right. And make sure that they think that you're a citizen in good standing. If they say you owe taxes, pay taxes. If they say you owe revenue, pay your revenue. If they say you owe respect or honor, pay it to the full. 
so that they might not have a single bad thing to say about you. And so that when they think about you, they think well of you and your people. That's what he's saying here. Now, I'm going to make a brief aside here to deal with kind of the Hitler complex. What do we do in extremity? I mean, so it's one thing to have a good, you know, a good government or a bad government. But what, what happens when it's so oppressive so as to be absolutely contradictory to the kingdom of God? Well, the short answer is we always obey God. We always obey God. There's no occasion where God's will for us is going to come into contradiction with God's will for us. So, in fact, we subject ourselves in obedience, you might say, and the word subject is bigger than obedience, but we subject ourselves in obedience to our governing authorities here, not because necessarily, I mean, at the root of it, because we're obeying God and doing so. So everything is being done in obedience to God, which means that when a government or an institution begins to press on us so as to force us to the place where we only have one option with them, it's either to obey them or incur harm, then we incur harm. That's what you see in the scripture all the time. I mean, Paul is, Paul writes several of his letters from a jail cell. All through, the, all through the Bible, you see this. You see respect for authority and the refusal to disobey God being shown to us like, hey, you need to note that. A good example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. Okay? Um, they're the ones who get thrown in the fiery furnace. Okay? They, were, they were young men who were captured when Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem and took them into exile. So now they're exiled slaves, you might say, servants of the Babylonian empire, and through their good and holy conduct, rise in the ranks of the Babylonian government to be people of influence. You you hear the wisdom of Romans 13 in this? And so here they are, people of influence and power, and then a law comes down that they have to bow a knee to the statue and worship Nebuchadnezzar as God. And they say, we can't do that. And they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel, same thing. Daniel was a young man taken captive by the Babylonians through his wisdom and God's favor rises to prominence in the service of his Lord, King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, this is the sort of language he uses. He's faithfully serving the empire until such a time that he's told he can no longer pray to Yahweh, at which point he prays to Yahweh and is thrown into the lion's den. Don't you see the good examples that are set before us show people who are wonderful citizens faithfully serving to the degree that's possible and wonderful Christians, wonderful servants of God who refuse to disobey. There's kind of a a malaise in the church that's looking for an opportunity to be both a mediocre citizen and a mediocre Christian. That we can we grumble over here and never go to death. And those examples, those men are more of both than we commonly conceive. Peter does the same thing in Acts. They drag Peter in. They say, you can't talk about Jesus. Don't say the J word anymore. He said, what, Jesus? You want me to say Jesus? None of Jesus? Okay. No, he said, he said, listen, he said, I can't obey you because I have the law of God as impressed upon me. So do what you need to do because I have to follow God. And they said, they beat on him. 
They said, they kicked him out and they said, no, don't do it. And he walked out worshiping the Lord in the church group. You see it? He, he was not a jerk. He was a good citizen and a good follower of God. That's what we're supposed to be. There may come occasions, you know, dying, martyrdom is not the only option. There's times you see in the Bible where faithfulness and fruitfulness were kind of not possible. So after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8, okay, Stephen is stoned. It says, at that point, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. Uh, James, the apostle, was killed at this point. And it says that the church scattered, is the word the Bible uses, is scattered. And it says, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. It's It's this beautiful image of, we cannot live under the roof of that authority, so we'll incur the harm of leaving, right? Picking up our household and starting over again, because we're going to go talk about God somewhere else. Even, let's think about the Exodus. Did the Hebrews rise up in insurrection against Pharaoh? No. Even though there were so many of them that they feared for them, right? The Egyptians said, ooh, there's so many of these Hebrews. What happens if they rise up? But Moses went and said, can we leave? And the Hebrews did not leave Egypt until Pharaoh said you could. They were obedient to the end. The Lord said to Moses, just watch, I'm over kings. Watch me. There's, the, the template in scripture is pretty firm. Okay, 8 through 10. This is, I want to do the whole chapter because Paul takes this one argument and he he does more with it. I I think we'd be stopping short to stop at 7. Now, if you remember, uh, verse 7 says, hey, if you owe revenue, pay revenue. If you owe taxes, taxes. Respect, respect. If you owe honor, honor. So here's the thought that follows into 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a great word. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You can see Paul addressing Addressing a fellowship that in it might have a little bit of, you know, stormy water about the government. You know, they, they won't let us worship the way we want. Why am I still a slave? You might, you pick it, right? I mean, this, the, the entire rainbow of injustices that might be being felt by the church to which Paul says, subject yourself to the government. Ultimately, ultimately it will go better for you if you're a good citizen. And then says, in fact... Let no debt remain unpaid except your continuing debt to love one another. He takes their attention away from what you might call societal reform, institutional correction. You know, right now everybody needs to be part of some movement that's changing the world. He's taking them away from that. You don't need to change the world. Be a good neighbor. Can you love well? That's what he's saying. He's saying, 
Make sure that, all, that anything that your, your, you know, the state might have on you is fully satisfied so that they look at you as a good citizen, except for one debt which you will never fully repay, which is the continuing debt that you owe of love to people around you. He starts with each other, which is in the church, but by the teachings done, he's way out at the neighbor. So all the people that you come into contact with, you have a never-ending debt of love towards them. That should be your focus. Not reconciling issues, claims you have of justice or retribution. Love. I often think uh, these issues, and again, in the United States, we're a little bit unique because we have rights and we have ways to change things. And so I do think we ought to be engaged. And I consider myself, personally, a politically active human. You know, I've been to state capitals addressing Congress. I've, I've, I've tried to do those things in, in ways that seemed at the time to be wise. And uh, nonetheless, I do think they can be a distraction from the general call of the believer, which is to be a lover of people. And sometimes people, sometimes we, in the endeavor to change, we do that instead of being loving. And that's absolutely unacceptable. There's some trends I'll point out. Uh, trends of the young and trends of the old. And uh, I don't think it has to do with like this day and age. It's probably in time memorial. But in general, I think this is probably true that young adults are full of vigor and believe in change. They have real faith in change. And they see institutional problems. I mean, they often see the, pro- the institution as the problem. They diagnose the institution as problematic and they endeavor to change it. And so I would say to them, the distraction is uh, to think of the institution as the problem. I would say the old trend, rather than kind of vigor and change, would be frustration and resignation. And many of these people still view the institution as the problem. They just... No, it cannot be changed. <laughs> They've given up hoping it be changed. I mean, the, the, the problem with both of those is the institution is not really the problem. The institution is full of nothing but humans and human nature. It's, there is no perfect institution. We're supposed to be high-minded citizens full of love. That's how God intends for us to be. And that's often how he works a great change out of it. Okay, 11 through 14, he does one more thing here that's significant. He says, besides, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
Paul has such finesse here in where he's brought the argument back to. There's this, remember, in in chapter 12, the whole argument started with, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, he says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the thrust of this argument, okay? The thrust of the practical nature of the gospel is in light of what God's done for us, you know, we're to be new, renewed, and think differently and be differently. But at some point, and it's it, towards the back of 12, or ch- chapter 2, it starts to be, you know, when people say things about you in persecution, show grace and mercy. When, when wrongdoing's been happening to you, you don't need to avenge yourself. Leave it to the Lord. With regards to the government, relax about the government. Be a good citizen. Trust that God's in control. Rather, be people of love. And at last and full on, be holy. He's right back to where he starts. Our, our problem is not the governing institution. Our problem is we don't love very well and we are not that holy. We have our hands full of that. You're not, you don't govern your own governing institution very well is what he's saying. Like we are a full-time job. Like I am a mutinous in myself. Like, I, I'm a governor just trying to hold my life together right here. Paul's saying, deal with that. God will handle the institutions. You deal with you. Deal with you. you seek to show love never-endingly to people and seek to be holy. And then who knows? Maybe people, maybe from among uh, the number of us we get raised up into places of government where good things happen. That's his job. Ours is to be loving and holy. Here's how I would, I would word the whole thought, the big picture. As the perfect kingdom of God takes root in the hearts of people, takes roots in our heart, every government will appear unjust or flawed. It's inevitable the more high-minded we become. The more, you know, he says it's no longer night. It's the day is coming. Every day that we walk, we're closer to salvation. Every day that we walk, we know more of the Lord and we we approach him. The the institutions of this world will show themselves for what they are. Some, Some will be unjust in small ways and some in moderate ways and some in significant ways. And some of this injustice will be felt by the church. And God's answer is, Do not view the government as the problem. Rather, think well of it. Recognize that God is sovereign in it and through it. You, in the meantime, should devote yourself to loving people well and living a holy life. Now, how does this look uh, for us? Uh, okay. Well, I would start with, um, well, we live in a culture right now in America where it's a very disrespectful culture about politics. Very disrespectful. So one very practical place to think is, is it would be well for us to check our tongue about how we speak of uh, people particularly those running for office because they may end up being your president. 
there's implications. You know, if, if you're used to, like, letting the cannon fire, that person's president, a moon a cannon, or, you know, honkity honk honk, whatever it is you feel like you got to do, I just want you to know, your kids are watching, God's watching, your soul is being battered by yourself because you are going to have to turn around and show this person honor. Some of us in recreation, in recreational criticism, have torn down the president and in the process for our children have torn down the presidency. We're creating a very low view of government, which is not right. So that might be a first place to start to think. If you find yourself, well, we might say, if, if you find yourself curmudgeon about, you know, how bad it is, and you're the, the sender of the email, the one that has to go to 10 people quick, right? That's kind of snarky, overly snarky. I think God has a word for you. I would say this. How does that accord with this? Just leave it at that. You know, likewise, if... Um, if you're a person who thinks that the salvation of God is lying in eradicating the injustice of whatever institution it is, I would, I would encourage you to relax a little bit in accordance with this teaching and say, God's over all of that. that is not the, that's not the real deal. You know, some people lose more sleep over a problem 6,000 miles away than they do about their neighbor's. God has squarely called us to those we know and said, among them, let no debt remain unpaid, but your continuing debt to show love. And God has squarely called you to your own life. Be holy. So before we maybe expire ourselves in movements, maybe we should remember that we're part of a movement. And that movement is one of Christ's followers who show love and exhibit holiness. Let's be part of that. You know, as an exercise this week, you know, if you want to try to protect yourself, every time you say something snarky or obsessive, you know, talk radio or news or whatever it is. Uh, and, and I'm one of those sorts of people, so I'm preaching to the choir right now. But if you find your tongue a little bit loose, you punish it by doing three loving things, all right? <laughs> Or something like that, you know. Uh, man, we'll be so exhausted with love. That would be a good thing, huh? Let's pray, Lord. We do want to begin now, Lord, thanking you that you have placed us in a, in a nation where, by and large, Father, we do see justice being dealt regularly, Lord, that... Um, that our governing authorities work to protect the innocent. And uh, judge the evil. We thank you that we, we live in a country that has notions about human dignity and takes those things seriously. Lord, in even ways that you've given us access and influence, we thank you for that. We thank you for our elected officials even those with whom we do not agree on much. 
Father, we recognize that you've placed them there and that you would have us be good and righteous citizens. So, Lord, if there's a, 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 a political officer or an elected official or even a boss, Lord, I lift up someone here who has a really bad boss. Father, we pray for ourselves that we might, you might give us strength to be noble in that environment. Father, guard, I pray you'd help us guard the way we speak so that we don't tear down things that you've built. And Lord, lastly, we ask that you'd help us be full of love. See that as a very, very fruitful occupation in our life of redeeming all sorts of people around us with your joy. Father, maybe we can see that, that greater good comes from a, one or two sentences of encouragement than uh, one or two of kind of comic relief that maybe does damage. And Lord, I do pray strength that we'd be holy, the desire to be holy and the strength to remain there. Help us to put Christ on, Lord. What a great phrase. May we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.